Good evening, my fellow Americans. Tonight, I'd like to talk to you about where we are as we mark one year since everything stopped because of this pandemic. I can't believe we are here. And when I say by here, I mean half a million people. We've lost half a million people to COVID in the United States. I lost my mother to COVID-19. Her body remains, but her mind was lost to a fast onset of full dementia. I also lost an uncle. In the last 18 months, I also lost my father and my aunt, though not to COVID. And every loss is personal, a function of the relationships that you had with the individual. While it was different for everyone, we all lost something a collective suffering, a collective sacrifice, a year filled with the loss of life and the loss of living for all of us. I, I, I really think that COVID has illuminated a lot of systemic issues that we've had for, for a very long time in the United States specifically, uh, especially along the lines of of health equity issues, structural racism. Sadly, our leaders have failed us and many died. They failed to implement the carefully prepared pandemic plans. Instead, rational public health interventions were twisted into partisan wedge issues. This experience has been nothing short of scary, humbling, maddening, frustrating, and sad. But in the loss, we saw how much there was to gain in appreciation, respect, and gratitude. We've seen frontline and essential workers risking their lives, sometimes losing them, to save and help others. Researchers and scientists racing for a vaccine and so many of you, as Hemingway wrote, being strong in all the broken places. When I reflect on the last year and how it's impacted me personally and professionally, um, gosh, I have really learned about my own level of resiliency my willingness to adapt and be flexible and just really how much I can bend. All I could see around me is strength. It's called Sisu. It means the ability to be tenacious, have grit, and be strong in the midst of extreme challenges. We had strength and grace. We've learned that we're stronger than what we think. And we've been reaffirmed on the reason why we chose a profession that's dedicated to taking care of people. Over a year ago, no one could have imagined what we were about to go through. But now, we're coming through it. And it's a shared experience that binds us together as a nation. We are bound together by the loss and the pain of the days 
that have gone by. We're also bound together by the hope and the possibilities of the days in front of us. We faced and overcame one of the toughest and darkest periods in this nation's history. Darkest we've ever known. I promise you, we'll come out stronger. From Texas Public Radio, this is Petri Dish. I'm Bonnie Petrie, and today, postcards from the pandemic one year later. You just heard from President Biden in his speech given on March 11th, marking one year of the pandemic. Viana Garza Tulip, who lost her mom to COVID last year. Mathematician Juan Gutierrez, biomedical engineer Amina Kareb, psychologist Stacy Obide, public health expert Drew Harris, nurse Serena Bumpus, and ICU doctor Ivan Melendez. If you've followed Petri Dish on this journey through this harrowing year, you've learned from each one of them. You've learned from scientists, researchers, doctors, nurses, and frontline workers of all kinds. You've met infectious diseases and vaccine experts, epidemiologists, and even the former head of the Centers for Disease Control. You've met COVID survivors, those who've lost people they love desperately and who have turned their intense pain into immense purpose. So what I'm saying is we've all met these people over the last year through their work to learn about and defeat this virus and end the pandemic or through their work to honor the losses we've all experienced. But we didn't necessarily get to meet them as people experiencing the same anguish, confusion, and loss that we were experiencing. Because they were. Of course they were. So I asked some of them if they'd be willing to sit by themselves in a room somewhere with their phones and record and send us some audio postcards to just tell us what's been on their hearts and their minds as they've been working so hard over this last year. And they did. Their thoughts are vulnerable, sometimes difficult, and also beautiful. There's there's sadness, loss, anger, love. It's my honor to share them with you. First, let's go to the front lines where doctors, nurses, and other healthcare professionals have been putting their own lives on the line every day without enough personal protective gear, equipment, medicine, supplies, heck, with not enough sleep to save the lives of others this year. This is Barbara. Uh, I guess to formally introduce myself, I, my name is Barbara Taylor. I am an associate professor of infectious diseases at the University of Texas Health Science Center, San Antonio. So I guess I have a lot of different thoughts about where we are right now. And a lot of that is the context of where we have been and, and where we're going, I guess. That's probably pretty obvious. But I was thinking that even six months ago, the idea that we would lose a half a million Americans to COVID-19 was still sort of inconceivable to me. And then when I saw the infographic that was on the front page of the New York Times, where every death is represented by a little dot, 
over the weekend and there's you know this starts out with a few dots and then there's more and more and more and more dots and the dots are really really tiny all the way down the front page of the paper i was just so struck by you know the i guess the density of death and and at the same time there is this disconnect with it right because here people are dots but in my life and the life of many people the the deaths from covid are not dots they all like you know in those dots are the 31 year old woman who i took care of who came in and died within 48 hours of her covid induced heart attack and the very elderly man who was on hospice who got covid and had to come back into the hospital and actually did okay but you know all of those dots are a story and it is really hard to think about how that still continues i go back on the covid service at university hospital next week and I always think of the people that we've lost when I go. And the disconnect between that, the fact that we are still losing people to COVID every day, and my day-to-day life when I'm not on the COVID service, which is that I'm working really, really hard on a COVID-19 vaccine trial. And so it almost gives me whiplash. I watch people suffering and young people, old people, people of all sorts of different backgrounds and ethnicities and exposures all with the same sort of panic look on their face and shortness of breath. And then I walk out of that to where we have many many people who are healthy lining up to put their bodies on the line to test a new vaccine so that we can get ourselves out of this and it's this constant ping-ponging back and forth between despair and hope and i really hope that as we move forward we can overcome vaccine shortages we can overcome vaccine hesitancy we can tell the stories of people with covid in our community while remembering and holding the people that we've lost in our hearts I'm Serena Bumpus, the Director of Practice for the Texas Nurses Association. Nurses have done without for a really long time. And this year, the lack of personal protective equipment has shown that. The staffing challenges that our nurses have experienced in the hospital setting. The fact that nurses have contracted COVID-19 along with other healthcare professionals, not just nursing, but that they've contracted COVID-19 in the hospital and have had to use their own personal time to 
to be able to care for themselves because it's not covered under workman's compensation. Nurses are in the business of human caring and healthcare is the business of human caring. But we can't do a great job of caring for those humans if we can't care for ourselves appropriately. Nurses are examples to the entire world of what human caring looks like. I'm very worried about the nursing profession as a whole when the dust settles from this pandemic. I am hearing of, of nurses who are leaving the profession, nurses who are still very young in their career, leaving the profession because they're so burned out and they're so tired and they just don't want to do this anymore. The level of moral distress and compassion fatigue is staggering to say the least. And, and that's not because we don't know how to take care of ourselves. We do. Even though we put the care of everyone else before us, we're a pretty resilient group of men and women. The level of burnout and moral distress and compassion fatigue stems from the fact that our healthcare infrastructure is so terrible and we have had systemic issues in healthcare for so long that have gone unaddressed for so long that it took a pandemic to finally realize it's time to start addressing those issues. And it took a pandemic to realize that nurses were very burned out long before COVID-19 ever came into the picture. And yet here we are. And now we have nurses leaving in droves. Suicide rates among nurses are up. Suicide rates among physicians are up. And the very people who put their heart and souls into everything that they do to give the public the best possible care and, and, and provides them with dignity and advocates for what is right are the very people who are exhausted and sometimes can't figure out how to go on. Something has to change. Our healthcare system needs a complete overhaul. And nurses are just the people who can do that. Please, if you or someone you know are considering any kind of self-harm, text HOME to 741-741 or call 1-800-273-8255. My name is Ivan Melendez. I live in Hidalgo County in South Texas, population 1.2 million people. This last year, as an active clinician in the COVID units, as the public health authority for the health department, and as a patient, as I turned positive in April, 
has been an incredible year. The stories that have happened to us with intubating our previous school teachers, burying our physician colleagues and nurses, playing videos from families to cadavers as they say goodbye, witnessing funerals where no one can get out of the car, walking into freezers with 90 bodies, driving by cemeteries with, full of cars but no one can exit to pay tribute to the deceased. It's been an incredible journey. And a year later, this morning, with my nine COVID patients still in my unit, with me holding their hand, promising they weren't gonna die, it continues to be an incredible toll on our psyche, our emotion, and our everyday existence. Great accomplishments during this year from the scientific community. The pain and tolls continue, the sensationalism continues, and our exhaustion only continues to grow. And what have we learned? The baseline health of our community is a primary determinant on the outcomes of our patients with COVID. We've learned that we're stronger than what we think. And we've been reaffirmed on the reason why we chose a profession that is dedicated to taking care of people. Let's go to the laboratories now where researchers have faced intense pressure to figure this virus out, where they've worked to understand it, what it's doing to us, and how to weaken its power over us. In the case of math labs, mathematicians have been furiously modeling, trying to understand where this virus has been and where it may go next so they can try to help stop its insidious march of death or at least help communities prepare for the onslaught. Dr. Peter Hotez is the co-director of the Center for Vaccine Development at Texas Children's Hospital in Houston, and he has been out there every day since the beginning of the pandemic, countering disinformation with good, evidence-based science. He sent us a postcard. Thanks so much for the uh, opportunity to uh, send this postcard over uh, a terrible time in, in, in American life. We've lost 500,000 people uh, to COVID-19, 500,000 moms and dads and brothers and, and sisters. And, you know, my thoughts are we never had to get to this place. It, it happened not only because of the unique features of the virus, but because we failed as a country in 2020 to launch a national strategy against COVID-19. Um, I'm hoping now we're in a better place. Um, the numbers are coming down. We're starting to vaccinate the American people in large numbers. My fingers are crossed that better times are ahead. I still don't know what's going to happen with this uh, 117 variant coming out of the United Kingdom. So that's an unknown. So holding my breaths. But uh, I do think we'll be in a better place as we head into the summer and fall. And thank you for the opportunity. My name is Juan Gutierrez. 
I am the chair of mathematics at the University of Texas at San Antonio. I lost my mother to COVID-19. Her body remains, but her mind was lost to a fast onset of full dementia. I also lost an uncle. Today, when we have lost over half a million American lives to COVID-19, we must remember those we have lost. From unborn babies to centennials, they were all gone, all too early. We could have had them for a few more days, or years, or a few more minutes. We remember you, but you did not have to die. Your passing is a testament to unpreparedness around the world. Nothing else has shaped human history like infectious diseases. This pandemic has taught us that we have not escaped their grip, but we could have lessened the grip of infectious disease in this particular instance. The only way to honor the memory of those we lost is to ensure that in the next pandemic, we do everything we can, because that's not what we did this time around. My name is Amina Kudup, and I'm an associate professor in the Department of Biomedical Engineering at the University of Texas, San Antonio. When I think of postcards, I think of snapshots of adventures. And for the 500,000 people who lost their lives this past year due to COVID, each one of them had a lifetime of snapshots. And as a nation, we collectively mourn the loss of those moments. In the last 18 months, I also lost my father and my aunt, though not to COVID. And every loss is personal, a function of the relationships that you had with the individual. My father, it was a joy to share my research with him, and we would have long discussions of how to model both human and artificial intelligence. I would send him pictures of my lab, images of ourselves, like I would send to my mother. And she actually would make postcards of these images and we would share them and I'd share them with my father and we would discuss how the cells were communicating, how the neurons were talking to each other in a sense. I'll miss those discussions. And for the two and a half million people worldwide who lost their lives to COVID, their loved ones will have tethers of memory just like I do for my father and my aunt. The people who lost family members and loved ones this year have another thing. They have a collective understanding. When I lost my sister, she was just a teenager and I was in my early 20s. It felt extremely isolating. My sorrow felt isolating. I shared it with family, but none of my friends had shared experiences. This year, many of us share loss. It's collective empathy. It doesn't lessen the plane, but it does mean that more people understand. At the same time, the pandemic has not hit evenly. I can see this in our research volunteers. We're studying how people's behavior can change fundamentally the ability of cells to repair and regenerate in the brain. And from our data so far, we can see that there's some people who are very resilient 
and are physically thriving while others are suffering and declining. This disparity is echoed when we look at how the pandemic has affected us around the nation. And I look around me more personally. My brother and my sister-in-law are raising two beautiful and brilliant little boys, my nephews. They are a joy to be around. At the same time, my older nephew has special needs and he requires nearly 24-7 care. I spent part of the pandemic with them, trying to help out, and it gave me a new understanding of what strength means from the people and within the people I was surrounded by. If you look at snapshots of my life over the last 18 months, some of the images would be terrifying. There were an orange sky that was raining ash. I drove through a highway where there was fire on either side. In Texas, I was skidding across ice on Highway 10, and my lab members and I lost power and heat and water during some bitterly cold nights. There were also the medical emergencies for my nephew, for myself, and a severe car accident, and of course the deaths and loss. At the same time, our science didn't stop. In fact, we needed to accelerate our work. There was such a need to understand and protect cognitive health, brain health. So the grants would go in, we continued to model, of course, and we took images, and we helped rebuild the lab. I started a new course based off of a programming language I just had learned. You could think about all of this collectively and think it was exhausting, but I never could voice that, not with who I was surrounded with. All I could see around me is strength. All of them embodied the term that the Finnish used to describe their character, the character of their country. It's called sisu. It means the ability to be tenacious, have grit, and be strong in the midst of extreme challenges. Sisu embodies the people I describe. They had strength and grace. Sisu is not something people advertise on Instagram or Twitter. However, if you think of anyone who's had a major impact, positive impact on this world and around people around them. Sisu is a part of them. Sisu describes the space explorers, the Arctic adventurers, the rebels. Sisu also describes people this year, many people this year, who showed the resilience of the human spirit. Strength, resilience, Things clinical health psychologist and associate professor in family and community medicine at UT Health San Antonio, Stacey Obud, has been helping people develop for years. And she's doubled down during this pandemic. Mental health experts are on different front lines, but their work has been and will continue to be extremely important as we experience this collective trauma in different ways. But how is she doing? It's a mix of emotions that are all coexisting. It's it's um it's anger, it's frustration, it's uh, some sadness, um, it's confusion. It's all of all of those things all at the same time. Uh, you know. I, I, I really think that COVID has 
illuminated a lot of systemic issues that we've had for for a very long time in the United States specifically, uh, especially along the lines of of health equity issues, structural racism. Um, when you look at the numbers, especially of the individuals who have died from COVID, there's a lot of black and brown individuals who have died from, from this disease, uh, as well as the rates of vaccination of who has access to get vaccinated, who's getting vaccinated. Um, it's it's um, it's a bit unsettling. It's um, it's difficult, especially being an African American female, when people who look like me are the ones dying from this. Um, it's it's a lot to take in. Um, I, I think we we might have thought, at least in the United States, I can't speak for other parts of the world dealing with this, that we might have thought that we've come very far with addressing health equity issues, uh, access to care, um, social, socioeconomic status related issues. And I think, honestly, I think COVID has come in and, and reminded us that we really have not come as far as we think we have. Um, and really has put us in our place as a, as a society of this is, this is us. This is where we are. Uh, we have a lot of work to do. Uh, we are are very selfish as as humans um you know with with dealing with this and you know almost a year in and it's still incredibly frustrating to still have to have the conversation about why a mask is necessary why the mask should go over your nose and your mouth it's why it's wild it's still so wild that this many people have died and this is still a conversation that people still have to have with people in the grocery store, with their families, at, at events, whatever it may be, why you need to be at least six feet apart, why physical distancing is necessary, why no, we cannot have these get-togethers because we've had half a million people die from this. It's so that's where the confusion and and just being completely just mind blown that this is still a conversation. I, I don't know what it will take to really get through to people that um, we have so much work to do. Um, yeah, that's we just have so much work to do uh, with with addressing um, access to care, health care health equity, access to evidence-based health care. We have so much to do. There are people 
epidemiologists and public and population health policy experts who have spent their entire careers preparing for this. Among them, the man who originally made the flatten the curve graphic, versions of which were up and down everyone's social media timelines a year ago at this time as we sought to slow the spread of COVID-19 so our hospitals could prepare for a surge of patients. My name is Drew Harris, and I've been working on pandemic preparedness since 9-11 and the anthrax attacks. In 2001, our concern was the deliberate release of a germ, but we recognized nature could be the most vicious bioterrorist. The worst case scenario was the 1918 influenza pandemic, which killed millions in months. Even though it devastated communities throughout the world, it was soon forgotten. Now we've reached the grim milestone of 500,000 Americans dead from COVID-19, and I fear that like 1918, we won't take care to learn the lessons and ensure we're ready for the next pandemic that is sure to come. Like 1918, it's clear that leadership matters. Early decisions in the face of uncertainty and unknowns determine the trajectory of the epidemic. Key interventions at the onset limit the peak of the first wave and help prevent future ones. Sadly, our leaders have failed us and many died. They failed to implement the carefully prepared pandemic plans. Early and aggressive mobilization would have ensured there were enough high-quality masks and other vital resources to protect the population and prevent spread. Instead, rational public health interventions were twisted into partisan wedge issues. Politicians who failed to provide sufficient support to struggling businesses and workers gave us the false choice between deaths from the virus and financial ruin, rather than acknowledging that the economy depends on a healthy population. Public health officials and scientific experts were literally attacked for their efforts to control viral spread and save lives. When this pandemic is over, my hope and prayer is that the public will not forget, but will hold their leaders accountable for what they did and didn't do. This is the way we honor the half million who have died and the many more that are sure to come. Hi, my name is Dr. Caitlin Jettelina. I'm an epidemiologist in Texas, both a professor of epidemiology, so you can think research lab and teacher, but also the founder and author of Your Local Epidemiologist, which is a blog that's gone viral uh, in translating COVID-19 science to the layman. Throughout this pandemic, my primary hat has been as an epidemiologist. And I could obviously spit out all the statistics about morbidity and mortality of COVID all day long. It's important that we humanize those data points, that we don't normalize or even minimize the milestone. So instead of spitting off statistics, for this postcard, I was going to wear my Texas mom hat, someone who's married to a police officer and lives on a quiet street in the suburbs. I wanted to dedicate this milestone to of 500,000 deaths to our dear friend. Um, that is one of those data points. I first met him through my husband. He was my husband's mentor and supervisor at the police department and someone who importantly instilled the joy and value of being a police officer, something that has been lost uh, entirely too much during these days. But to this day, my husband talks about how much he enjoyed his job in the early days with this guy. A few years later, my husband was a groomsman in his wedding, and that's actually where I first met him. 
He had a massive bald head. Uh, I think he was in his early 40s, uh, maybe late 30s. Someone you would never see without a smile and a cigar in a mouth. He had a larger than life personality who really quite literally filled the world with color. As an example, at his sergeant's desk, which I often passed by while working in the field, it was always filled to the brim of action figures and cartoons and pictures and memories. So I want us to take this milestone and remember that COVID didn't just take away 500,000 lives. It took away this father of two young children. But someone we desperately needed to fill the dark times. Someone with a positive attitude who put their life on the line every day for fellow community members and a soldier who believed in a better and brighter world. So I dedicate this segment to him and to all the other 499,000 data points and all of the stupid Zoom funerals that we've had to attend. May they not die in vain, but as a constant motivation to keep us fighting the pandemic and misinformation so not more people like him are lost in a world where they are greatly needed. Tom Frieden, former director of the United States Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, also former New York City Health Commissioner, and currently president and CEO of Resolve to Save Lives. More than one year into this pandemic, with more than half a million killed in the U.S. and more than two and a half million killed around the world, I mourn not only the loss of life, but the loss of education, jobs, personal connections, and the deaths not just from COVID, but also from the disruption that COVID causes. And that disruption isn't just to everyday life, it's also to our communities, to politics. The divisions are so deep in our society. I feel we've gotten away from that old essential line that you're entitled to your own opinion, but not to your own facts. It feels like now in society, people have their own facts and we have to get past that because the more we're divided, the more the virus will continue to conquer us. The virus adapts, it's not even a living thing and it knows how to adapt. We have to adapt also. We have to recognize that we're all in this together. We have to cooperate and recognize that the health of any one of us can affect the health of every one of us. The more we mask up, the safer we all are. The more we get vaccinated, the safer we all are. We're all connected, and every community anywhere in the U.S. that has uncontrolled spread is not only risking the lives of people in that community, but also risking that there will be the emergence of more dangerous forms of this deadly virus. That's why it's so important we get vaccination and control measures in place in every community of the U.S. and in every country of the world. This is a tipping point. This is the most teachable moment we will have in our lifetimes. Will we seize it? Will we make sure that a year from now we can look back and say, yes, that was the moment 
at which the world made a commitment to and began action to have much stronger public health and primary health care systems in the United States and around the world. The curve did not remain flat, as we now know. There was wave after wave of infections with tsunamis that killed thousands and tens of thousands and now more than 500,000 Americans as they washed over the nation. We met two women who each lost a parent in surges in Arizona and Texas last year. Two women who have been fighting ever since to find purpose in their heartbreak by helping others find purpose in theirs. Hi, this is Kristen Urquiza, and I lost my dad, Mark Urquiza, to COVID-19 on June 30th. Following his passing, I launched a nonprofit called Marked by COVID, where I've been connecting with and, and working with others who've experienced loss to memorialize and honor our loved ones and make sure that our ongoing response doesn't leave us behind. And as we've just recently passed this half million, this grim, terrible mark of deaths that we've experienced in less than a year, I can't help but continually think back to how one year ago, most of them were still here. One year ago, they, including my father, were still alive. Many of them without any idea that their passing from this terrible virus would happen in just a few weeks or months. It's a really hard thing to process, but I think that it's important that we must process both individually, within our families, within our community, within the world, so that we can properly respect, but also learn. We must learn from this experience not only to honor them, but to make that commitment to never forget. So a tragedy, a preventable tragedy like this doesn't happen again. Hi, my name is Fiona Garza Tulip, and I lost my mom to COVID-19 on July 4th, 2020. And we're still trying to convince people that this virus exists, that it's important to take precautions, and that people really died of COVID. There are so many people who just don't believe that my mom died of COVID. They ask, well, how old was she? Well, did she have any pre-existing conditions? My mom was 64. She was a respiratory therapist and she was healthy. She should still be here today. Since she's past, I've been on this crusade of sorts to uplift other people's stories and to share my mom's story. It's been so important for me that people get to know my mom because she had a spirit that <laughs> we all deserve to experience still. Um, she was she was special and she loved so hard. The, when I look at my daughter, who's now 18 months, I just feel bad because she's going to miss out on the type of love that I got to experience from my mom. I think my mom probably would have given her 
20 times more love because that was her first and only grandchild and she was so excited. Um, I've never seen her so happy or smile so big as she did when she saw Lua. And I just wish they could grow together. Um, when I think about you know, the grieving process, I, it's, it's something I've learned a lot about. I've learned that it's very different for everyone. I honestly don't know if I've hit that point to where I'm grieving yet. I, I cried the day that she died and then I got angry. I got angry at the country's response, at the government's response to COVID. I got angry at her hospital. I was just angry and I'm not as angry, but I haven't been able to cry. Maybe a tear or two comes every once in a while when I hear someone's story or when I, I hear a memory about my mom, but I, I, I don't cry. And it just makes me wonder, is this how I grieve or will I grieve later? And what kind of impact is this delayed grief going to have on me and the millions and millions of other people who have lost a loved one. I've lost two other family members to COVID, so I've lost three total. And I'm just not crying. One of the things that I think about is that as a country, we aren't really recognizing this number, the 500,000. We're not recognizing it in a way that we would had, I don't know, 500,000 people died in a plane crash. 500,000 people died in a, a build, oh, the World Trade Center. Um, we're just going on with life. And I think that's having a really tough impact on people like me and, and who have lost someone very important to them. I miss my mom dearly, but one thing that I hold with me is, is the chant that she taught me when I was, when I was younger. Um, she would come home from work and we would march around the house saying, fight, fight, fight for what you know is right. Fight, fight, fight for what you know is right. And that's been in my head since I was a child and more so since she passed away. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to fight for what I know is right. I'm deeply moved by the fight of every single person who shared a postcard with me and all of their colleagues. And really, I'm just, I'm moved to tears on the regular by the ferocity of the fight I see in so many of us every single day. Perhaps this fight, this, this refusal to give up in the face of the many challenges presented by this pandemic is best represented by a woman we've talked with a couple of times over the last year. Hi, Emmett. Did you have a good nap? Oh, hi, sleepyhead. She's my friend, actually, and her name is Christy Calloway. She lives in Corpus Christi, Texas. This big boy. Honey, you're okay. You're okay. Right there, you're listening to her and her brand new baby boy. 
her pandemic baby, see in perhaps the ultimate example of the audacity of hope. She got pregnant through in vitro fertilization in May, and her spectacular son was born in February. Mom is good boy. Being pregnant during a pandemic was difficult, to say the least. Um, I wasn't able to be around family and friends, celebrate the pregnancy, celebrate the baby with family and friends. There's a lot of sacrifices made to keep myself and our baby healthy. Um, in the end, around 36 weeks pregnant, I got COVID anyway, it found us. And it just goes to show you that no matter how many precautions you take, that this virus is just, it's out there, it's everywhere. And um, you really cannot be too careful. Thankfully, I had a, a moderate case of COVID. My husband's was mild. I was able to recover at home. It was, it was pretty awful being pregnant and having COVID. But, um, you know, I, I'm hopeful that I passed on some antibodies to this sweet little baby boy. And my husband and I now are partially vaccinated. Our families are vaccinated. And um, we're really just at this point looking to the future and what we can do to further protect ourselves and our son. Emmett is a month old now and is thriving. And it's scary to think about the world that he was born into and how different it is from the world I grew up in. There's a pandemic, there's so much chaos and unrest. But I also think that you'll be hard-pressed to find any time in history that didn't have its own brand of chaos and unrest. And it's my hope that we can raise our son to be a good person and to prioritize other people and to care about the health and safety of others. Um, I believe he is part of a generation that is going to make big changes and do big things. And I just, my prayer for his future is just that he can be healthy and happy and continue thriving no matter what this crazy world throws at him. Thank you, Christy. And welcome to the world, this crazy, crazy world, Emmett. As I watched the president speak on March 11th, one year after the World Health Organization declared what we were experiencing was a pandemic, I had what can only be described as trauma responses. My heart began racing. My breathing became quick and shallow. My eyes filled with tears. One year of sickness, confusion, isolation, of death for all of us. 
a collective trauma it'll take years for some of us to process and some of us might not ever be able to do it. Then the next day, March 12th, I got my second shot. I am fully vaccinated against COVID-19. It was a head-on collision of contrasting emotions, mourning for the year gone by, but, but tentatively allowing tendrils of hope to rise up from my heart to my head. Maybe we really are approaching the end of this whole thing. I saw an older woman on TV last week who got her vaccinations. She was just overcome at the idea of being able to hold her grandchildren. I was overcome by the idea of her being able to hold her grandchildren. We were both crying. She said people like her had been living in a kind of oblivion for a year. Oblivion. That word struck me. We've all been in an oblivion, a sort of suspended animation. Families in bubbles, waving from a distance to friends and loved ones sealed off in their own bubbles, trying desperately to keep their bubbles from bursting until the day we don't need their protection anymore. It feels like we're almost there. We're so, 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 so very close. It's in no small part because the people you've just heard in this episode, the epidemiologists, the doctors, the nurses, the scientists, the advocates, the activists, they're the ones who have made this hope possible. So let's support them now if we can over the next few months. Let's continue to take our pandemic precautions, yes, even vaccinated me, to protect them during the home stretch the way they've been protecting us all along. This episode of Petri Dish was produced by Dominic Anthony Walsh and me. Sound design and music by Jacob Rosati with additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. Our executive producer is Fernanda Camarena. TPR's news director is Dan Katz. Special thanks to Mark Memmott for his contributions to the show. This podcast is a production of TPR and the Texas Newsroom, a collaboration between public radio stations across Texas and NPR. I'm Bonnie Petrie. Talk to you soon. Support for the Petri Dish podcast comes from Pay It Forward, providing sober living for newly recovering individuals. Pay It Forward is hosting their first annual skeet shoot at noon on March 26th. Sponsorship and registration information is at payitforwardsa.org backslash events.